Good morning, church family. You all can turn to 1 Peter with me today. And if you do not normally turn in your Bible, but you watch up here, I want to encourage you to get a Bible today because I have nothing for you to look at but this face. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles today. You all need some encouragement for the spiritual journey today? All three of you do? All right. Um, get ready. I've been told I have the spiritual gift of encouragement. Here it is. You don't belong here. Okay. All right, let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase it. You don't belong on this earth. There you go. You belong in the room. Thank you for being here. But you don't belong in this world. You don't belong here. And uh, you're probably thinking, Seth, I thought you said you were going to encourage me. Uh, after our time here in First Peter, I think that as you understand the extent that you're a foreigner, you will find great encouragement because it gives you a different lens by which you look at the world around you. In fact, it encourages you a lot because you realize that as a believer in Christ, it won't always be this way. There is a season, and for the child of God, there is a reason for each and every season that we go through. So we're going to be looking at 1 Peter, and I want to give you all just a little bit of context. If you've got a study Bible, you'll see that it's dated around 64 to 65. And um, Nero was the ruler at the time, and as many world rulers their claim to fame is what they built. It's like, I built that house. Look at that, right? And the opportunity to build came up as they burned the city down. And then, again, corrupt rulers, you know what they are like, right? So that being said, corrupt ruler, burning city, people get devastated, and people want to blame somebody. And the Christians were being blamed. They were already uh, suspect because of their association with the Jews. And they become extremely suspect, and now they're against them because of their belief that Jesus Christ is the only way, not one of many gods. And when persecution broke out from Rome, it poured out into the various provinces. And what the text we're going to look at today, it poured out into northern Turkey. So we know that hardship broke out for the church. And so as we look at this, Peter's going to be taking his audience on a journey and the journey is this. Just imagine this. If you were going through the hardest situation of your life, what would you need to know? Or maybe put it this way. If you were about to go through one of the hardest seasons of your life that would annihilate your world, what would you need to know? What would need to be down in your stomach, down to the core of who you are? That's where he's going to take us. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'm starting in 1 Peter because um, in the, throughout the course this year, whenever Sid's got me subbing for him, I'm just going to be coming back to 1 Peter. So hopefully you guys will have a secondary journey. The main one right now is Ecclesiastes, but as I teach, I'd like to just keep going through 1 Peter together. So can, I do a, can you guys do me a favor? We don't do this very often, but can we stand together as we read 1 Peter 1, 1 through 9? And again, if you're newer with us, we're just doing this today out of respect for God's word. We believe God's word is the authority in our life. So uh, let's read it. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkle with his blood. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, that is, the salvation of your souls. You guys may be seated. Let me pray and just ask the Lord as we dive into this and seek greater understanding that he would teach us today. Our Father, thank you so much for the confidence we can have in your word. Thank you that your word does not change, and because it's true, and it has the final authority in all areas of life, Lord, it speaks to us today as it did back then. So today we come with humble hearts that you would teach us and take us on this journey to prepare our hearts for maybe perhaps what we're facing to give us perspective. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, you can see in your outline there, it says in verses 1 and 2, seeing ourselves as exiled but chosen has huge implications. So we look back in verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we know Peter is the author here, but if you look back at the end of the book, in chapter 5, verse 12, we see that Silas, or Silvanus, helped him write this as well, or at least penned it with him. And this was Peter, in case you're, you know, we automatically just assume, like, just Peter the Apostle. But just to give you kind of a background on Peter, uh, Peter was introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew. Uh, He actually was the only apostle that was mentioned as being married. This is the apostle that was invited to walk on water, and he did. He's also the apostle that denied the Lord Jesus when it really mattered. And if you read the history of the early church in the book of Acts, after the ascension of Christ and his denial and ascension of Christ, Peter was the spokesperson in the Jerusalem church and was the main character that God was using. And so Peter has gone on a high and a low spiritual, in his own spiritual journey of following Christ. So he's identified as Peter, and it says an apostle. Apostle means, you can see it in your outline, a sent one. He's one that saw the death and the resurrection of Jesus and was sent as a witness of what he saw. So he's an apostle, and he makes it very clear. Who's he identifying with? Of Jesus Christ. 
So he is declaring his allegiance, but he's also declaring where he gets his authority to write here. So Peter's the author. His audience is God's elect or exiles scattered throughout the provinces here. Now, for, when it says God's elect, some of your translations say to God's chosen or to God's own people. The word elect means called out ones. And it was important for what they were facing or getting ready to face that they needed to understand that they were called out. They were picked. And to know that they were elected or chosen or picked would sustain them through what they were about to face. And let's just, just ponder for a moment, reflect back in your childhood. Y'all remember how important it was not to be the last one picked on the playground? You remember that, don't you? It's really important for kids not to be the last one picked. It's pretty honor. It's actually quite honoring to be the first one picked, right? Could be for various reasons, but I remember like yesterday, you always want to be, not be the last one picked. Isn't it kind of honoring when somebody picks you as a friend? It's even more honoring when somebody picks you as a spouse. They actually are committing their life to me. But is there anything more soul-shocking, life-anchoring, than to hear a phrase that says, God's elect, God's picked. Is there? Think this through. Peter was telling these people, you are God's chosen. And it would anchor them, but it changes something physically on this earth. Being called out or picked is the reason that they were considered exiles or pilgrims. See, in other words, the Bible says we are born as children of wrath. We are born sinners. We sin against God. And we are part of this world and its system. When they were chosen by God, they were called out ones. And it fundamentally changed their position on the world around them. They no longer belonged to the world. They no longer belonged to its system or its sin. And it changed everything in their relationship with everyone around them. Now it says exile, scattered. You guys can see in your bulletin I included words. Those are the different uh, words used in your various English translations. So if you have different translations than what we're reading from today out of the NIV, you can look and see that exiles is translated foreigners, aliens, pilgrims, sojourners, strangers, temporary residents, and really it's refugees until you get to heaven. And so he's writing to believers in Christ, and I think there are clues in the text that we'll see as later on in the year that we go through, that he's included Jews and Gentiles. These are just people, believers in Christ in this general geographic location. And so whether they were Jews or Gentiles, they were believers in the Messiah, and Jesus referred to them, Jesus, Peter refers to them as temporary residents, travelers. And it brought me back to the fact that in John 16, 33, Peter was sitting by Jesus when he said in 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And that Peter knew this mindset would serve the believer well when they were going through hardship while they're living on this earth. And that seeing themselves as a pilgrim was really a key to spiritual success in this journey. I would say the opposite is true as well. Not seeing 
ourselves as pilgrims is devastating in our Christian life. It causes all sorts of confusion. So I have a question for you. I put it in your outline there. How do you think of yourself? Do you see and think of yourself primarily as a pilgrim, traveler, sojourner, on your way to somewhere? Or do you primarily think of yourself as a U.S. citizen? What you think of yourself or how you think of yourself is incredibly important. In fact, it's very important. I have watched in my own brief lifetime, born-again Christians, people who believe that Jesus died and rose again, struggle and stumble in virtually everywhere. I made a list this last week on things that I see. I see a lot of believers in Christ confused. They struggle with priorities, waste a lot of time and resources, are frustrated with disappointments, They're caught off guard because life is hard. I see believers grasping for identity, clinging to earthly worth. I see parents struggling with how to parent their kids. I see spouses hurting each other and living selfishly. And I think the reason why is because we as a body struggle to see ourselves as temporary residents on our way to somewhere else. If we see ourselves as a pilgrim or a traveler or an exile, I believe it clears the cloud of confusion and a lot of decision making. It aligns our priorities. It gives perspective on our disappointments. It demands the proper use of our resources and it will keep you alert. It secures your identity. allows you to hang on to true wealth the way Christ finds it in Matthew 6. Strengthens your parenting, softens you to your spouse, and it definitely anchors you to the Lord. And this way of seeing yourself changes everything. The Lord Jesus saw himself this way. We saw in the upper room discourse in John 14 to 17, as Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you that you can come to be with me. And he begins to explain, I'm going to send the helper. He's going to help you and guide you in all truth. You need to abide in me. And in John 17, he prays for his disciples because he's leaving. Because Jesus saw himself as a traveler, as one going somewhere, it brought purpose, it brought glory to God the Father, and it brought our salvation. So look in verse 2. It says this, "...who who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit." To be obedient to Jesus Christ is sprinkled with his blood. Now Peter clarifies what he means by chosen. It is more than just he knew ahead of time. But if you look at the the sequence of events here, it's actually saying being chosen is rooted in the foreknowledge of God the Father. So in other words, he knew ahead of time and he willfully chose his children. If you're a believer in Christ, that should really strengthen your heart. He then goes on to say it's based upon the blood of Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And his plan is accomplished through the work of the Holy Spirit that sets his people holy and apart. So we know this, guys. The triune God is working on our behalf even when we do not see him. 
And you could say it this way, through the work of the Holy Spirit and the will of the Father, we become God's kids by hearing and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again. It's his blood that provides the way of forgiveness, and it's his spirit that guides us on this journey, and it's all put in the parentheses or the envelope of God's sovereign plan. And so can I just say this, that if you're in a season where you're struggling, God is doing so much when you cannot see him. He is. He's always working. Always working. Let's continue to read in verses 3 through 5. In verse 3 it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So in your outline we see as travelers, God has given us eternal truths that anchor us in this difficult world. And it's like Peter is saying, in light of what I'm going to tell you later on in this letter, he breaks out in praise and says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we know where to find hope in a world that lacks it from circumstances. And he says here, praise him because of his mercy he has given us in a new birth. This echoes of what Jesus said in John chapter 3 when talking to a religious man who says, you have to be born again. Are you born again? Are you born again? You have to be born again if you want to see the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be with the Lord Jesus, you have to be born again. The Bible says being born again is one who believes in Christ that he died and rose again. For their sins. And if you're not sure about being born again, not only will you not have a relationship with God, you will find no peace in the middle of your struggles in this world. But if you've been born again, I will tell you this you know that what I'm talking about when I say there's hope. It's hope of forgiveness and acceptance by God the Father, even though you look in the mirror and you realize you don't stack up on a daily basis. He says this living hope in the text of verse 3 is through the resurrection of Christ. And if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to just write 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to encourage you in the next week, read this and meditate on this. Because what he's saying is that us as believers, our resurrection is directly tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That when we die or when our loved ones die, we have hope even in the worst of trials knowing that we will rise again because Christ himself was raised from the dead. Now in verses 4 through 5, let's read that. It says, And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So this inheritance is described as never perishing, spoil, or fading. And this is fundamentally opposite of our human experience. It'd be very opposite of people who are traveling or nomadic. Things just get ruined. Now, this year, Anya and I celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary. And I guess we celebrate it by having moved, I think we're actually on number 15, 15 times. And uh, that would be, on this side of heaven, probably the definition of a sojourner, right? And uh, I was thinking about this. From when we, we started in 2001... Most of the stuff that we bought and got for wedding gifts is no longer with us. It's spoiled, faded, or perished. 
And when you move, if you've moved before, you know things get damaged. They do. We actually have one hope chest that I made her before we got married. And it shows abuse. The thing's just, I mean, it's scratched, it's faded, it's gouged. All that to say, in our moves, we realize things don't last. Pilgrims would know this. And that no matter what I do from my cars, how many of you guys hate rust? I hate rust. I hate, I hate rust. I hate rust. No matter what I could do from our cars or my wife does with our curtains or the clothes we wear or the amount of remodeling that I do, everything perishes, spoils, and fades. And I think it's God's way of reminding us that as travelers, not to sink our grips into things, into stuff. That really only the stuff that matters forever is what well, we have this drumbeat. We know this to be true, friends. It's that things that matter forever, he wants us to look, keep our eyes fixed on and sunk into. And this inheritance that doesn't spare, spoil, fade, or perish is meant to give us incredible hope. In the middle of all the perishing, we have something that's being reserved. And look what it says. It's kept in heaven for you. In other words, for a time you cannot see. Right now you see all this stuff perishing. But this inheritance is kept in heaven. Now, when it says kept, or some of your translations say reserved, it's not like my experiences when I fly. I've flown probably maybe 12, 14 times in my life. And I don't know if it's just my problem, but well over half the time, I get on the plane and I, I buy the cheap seats, right? And I go to the back. It's usually back near the bathroom that nobody wants to sit. And when I get back there, well over half the time have I flown that somebody is sitting in my seat. I don't know why. Is this normal? This is normal for me. I get back there and I'm like, um, row 26C. And they give me that sheepish look and they're, you know, this awkward moment. <clears throat> That's not what we're talking about reserved. Reserved is when you go out for a nice dinner with somebody special and the table's set. And when you walk in, you know that's your table. So he says here, your inheritance is reserved. And he says, <clears throat> how do you have it? You, through faith, you are shielded by God's power. So through faith or trusting in God's provision of Christ, that is how we receive uh, forgiveness of sins. But we are shielded by God's power. What exactly is he talking about? Romans 1.16. Anybody know it? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is, the, it is the power of God unto salvation. That when we believe or trust in Christ, it is the power of God, his salvation, his gospel, that Christ is acting on our behalf and shields us from the wrath to come. And it is ready to be revealed in his last days. So I want to encourage you, because some people who say, will say that, well, Peter only wrote to the Jews, and his message is not remotely consistent with what Paul or others would say. Keep your hand in 1 Peter, and we're going to read two other passages together, and they're fairly lengthy, so I want to encourage you to turn with me. Turn back to the left, to your, to your left, to Ephesians chapter 1. And the message is going to sound very similar. See if you actually hear... It goes Galatians, Ephesians. If you hear some of the same words, here it is. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. He says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Check it out. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So whether you feel this way or not, this is fact as a believer in Christ. In love, he predestined us for adoption through sonship, through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us and the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of his God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in, uh, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Are you hearing this? It's the same message. You were chosen. If your faith is in Christ, the fact is you were picked. And you've got an inheritance that is meant to sustain you through the difficulties of this life. Now turn with me to John chapter 14. Just read a few more verses there. So turn to your left a little bit more. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And Jesus also wanted them to understand something about this inheritance. John chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My Father's house has plenty of room. If that were not so, would I have told you that? I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the place to where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you see, you guys can turn back to 1 Peter. You see that we actually have a profound, guaranteed, eternal inheritance that will not perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us. And this is an amazing, soul-anchoring reality. It is a hope of every pilgrim. This hope, honestly, doesn't mean so much for the pilgrim who has heaven on earth. Maybe this is why we as Americans really struggle with this idea. That the gifts that we have can also serve as our greatest struggle. That when we've got everything, it's kind of cloudy to look forward to what we cannot see. And yet, 
I'm willing to bet that many of you, before you walked in today, during the events of the course of the last year, you've probably had some thoughts, I don't belong. This is world's not my home. You watch the news and you say, what in the world is going on? You've had this churning. It's the Holy Spirit reminding you that you're a pilgrim. And there's something beyond this world. There's something beyond the bank account. There's something beyond what you have going on in your home. There's something beyond your health. And we have an imperishable inheritance. Now in verse 6 and 7, we see that trials and hardship for the traveler, for the believer, they serve an eternal purpose. So we don't have to settle for some fatalistic, well, we're just kind of doomed. They serve an eternal purpose. Let's read it. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So in light, he's essentially saying, in light of what I just told you above, not circumstances on earth, you rejoice. And he's saying it in agreement to what Jesus said in Luke 10, where the, the apostles were sent out in uh, twos. They were casting out demons. Circumstances were great. And Jesus looks at him square in the eye in the middle of the celebration. He says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's almost as if Christ knew that circumstances would be like a roller coaster. And he wanted his followers to be sustained in any circumstance. That the believer in Christ has to fix their gaze towards heaven. And Peter is saying here, you all are rejoicing deeply in this great inheritance that can never be uh, taken away. And the true pilgrim rejoices because God's provision, even though circumstances of this world might be horrible, but because of God's provision. Then he uses the phrase here, though thou for a little while. He's not saying it might be a little trial. He's saying is the timing is temporary. It won't always be this way. And then he uses the phrase, you may have to, or some of your translations say, if necessary. And in my devotional list about two weeks ago, I wrote, Lord, why would suffering or trials be necessary? Because as Americans, we're not real good about understanding the biblical teaching of suffering. Peter says above that the blessing for every believer is to know that they have an eternal inheritance kept in heaven for them. But it's like God knows that that sin nature inside of us clouds our judgment to really know the spiritual condition of our faith in a given time. And so most of us deceive ourselves as we assess our health. Most of us need physical doctors when assessing our health. All of us need trials to help us assess our health. So why does, why does God allow suffering or trials in our lives? Because God cares more about your mature faith than your temporary happiness. He wants a mature, anchored faith that is fixed on his return and not circumstances. Now in verse 7, it says this, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. So 
the point of trials is to reveal the condition of your faith. To reveal it, to be genuine. And how does this refining work? It works like refining gold. Now, historically, we know gold is the most precious metal on earth. And it's tested by the trial of fire. The more pure gold, the more precious the metal, the more valuable it is. Okay? The text is saying here that faith, your faith, is way more valuable than gold. The most precious metal on earth. And that nothing is more valuable to God and the life of his kids than their faith becoming mature. Now, trials are God's refining fire in the life of his kids. And it's through trials and through hardship that God is refining and exposing the condition of our faith. They, at times, are needed for children of God to refine and reveal where they're at in their faith journey. That is a reality, friends. And today's uh, fad is to turn to victimhood when undergoing a trial. It's super popular in the Christian world just to pray trials away. Lord, you must not love me if I have this trial. And the opposite is true. And in our culture, we want to blame people. We want to blame institutions. Instead of looking up to God. And the challenge we have for us, before us as children of God, is that when we're undergoing trials, take our eyes off the horizon and take our eyes upward. And ask this question, Lord, what is this trial revealing or refining about my faith? And during that trial, I want to encourage you to watch which direction your faith is going. Feel your heart starting to grow cold. Feel your heart starting to grow distant from his word, from him and his body. Friends, it's revealing where your faith is. Are you trying to move into control of circumstances or move into a deeper love trust of the Lord Jesus? So pay attention. Think through your latest trial. I want to encourage you with this. Think through your latest trial. And does the end result of that trial cause you to praise the Lord Jesus and glorify him? If not, we have to change our focus. And concerning your faith, and again, if you're writing things down, this is something that I feel like the Lord just revealed to me, that God is most concerned about each of us having a genuine God-glorifying faith when Jesus Christ is revealed, and he will allow almost anything in the life of his kids for that final outcome. Don't ever doubt it. And that when we realize this, much of the Christian pilgrimage will start to make sense. In fact, much of the Christian church in America ignores this teaching. And I really believe from this text that every faith struggle I have is God's gift to shore up the foundation of my faith. And I would challenge you, until you wrestle with this idea that God will allow anything in my life to anchor my faith, to get it shored up, you will not have mature faith in your journey. 
Verses 8 and 9, we'll see that the pilgrim's faith brings joy now in the middle of hardship and salvation when Jesus Christ comes back. He says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter's acknowledging the earthly strangeness of loving and relying on someone you have never seen before. That is something we all have in common in this room. We love Jesus and rely on him for eternity, and we've never seen him? From an earthly perspective, that is strange. But I imagine for many of you, it's not so strange at all. You know, you know, you know, you know. You have those moments where you said, as for me, I will serve the Lord. I know him. I've decided to follow Jesus. So what do we get here as a result of believing and loving Christ as our Savior? We're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. It's a joy that comes only from the Lord in this pain-filled world. And it says we get the end result of our the end result of salvation. Our sin is taken care of, and we're free from the judgment of God. So, with that, friends, is your faith in Christ? Look at your outline real quick. If your faith is in Christ, you are described as a foreigner. You don't belong. You're an exile. You're alien. You're a pilgrim. You're a temporary resident. Everything you have is borrowed. You're a refugee. And thinking this way aligns our thinking and helps us make sense of the difficulties in our world. But we as believers in Jesus, let me just say this very, very clearly. We as believers in Jesus are not victims. If you're tempted to think that you're a victim, you are not a victim. I would even make the argument we are not victims even if people mistreat us or kill us. We as believers in Christ have been chosen by the maker of the universe. There is no room for victimhood. I don't care what happens in our world. The greatest way we put the glory of God on display as we go through life, this mistreatment at work, the mistreatment from family, the mistreatment from neighbors or our community, or I don't care what it is, is that we live in the reality that we've been chosen. We've been picked. Makes all the difference. Being a pilgrim does come with temporary hardships or trials. But those trials have a purpose. They shore up our faith and they strengthen us. So don't blame people when you're going through trials or hardship. They may have sinned and that may have brought the trial in. But we know from this text that God is sovereignly working these things out to shore up our faith. And when we take our eyes off of him, we settle for stress and anxiety instead of that eternal inheritance that doesn't perish, spoil, or fade. Now, if you're really struggling with your faith, I believe the word of God and the Lord Jesus can handle the heat. You take that to the Lord, and I'm telling you what, he can be your source of comfort. Before I close, I want to just share two 
examples of people in Scripture that fix their gaze ahead and upward that sustain them in what we would all call the hardest of the hardest times. The first one is the Lord Jesus in Luke 23. While hanging on the cross, knowing his death is, is happening, when they were crucifying him, he said what? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He turned his gaze to the Father. And when being reviled, the other thief on the cross, who then said, don't you know? And he says, Jesus, remember me. In other words, acknowledging his kingship. And then Jesus says today, what? You will be with me in paradise. Do you ever think that while Christ was on the cross, he was fixing his gaze ahead? Hebrews 12 says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. In other words, the Lord Jesus had to fix his gaze towards what the Father was doing. The second one is Stephen. He's the first official martyr of the church. And he stood before a group of the religious leaders under intimidation and trial. And I want to read this to you. It says, this is what he says. The book of Acts chapter 7. It says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, that is his testimony of Jesus, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Do I hear that, right? Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coat at the feet of a young, name, young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. What? While he's getting boulders tossed on him, he prayed. We all say, I, I could never. Wait, wait, wait. No, no. All of us would crumble if it not, were not for the help of the Holy Spirit and fixing our gaze on somewhere else other than our trial. He prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. They, then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen fixed his eyes on the Savior and the ultimate worst trial of his life. And I would say this, that the traveler can find joy and hardship because he finds hope in what is waiting for him in the end. That is, eternal life, unspoiled, unfaded, imperishable, kept firmly in the hands of Christ himself. And this is why Paul can say in 1 Thessalonians and, so, and also 1 Corinthians 15, so we will be with the Lord forever. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We're going to close out this time together. And Michelle and the worship team will be coming up. And I want to actually, as they sing this song, I want you guys just to contemplate the words. They'll be up here. You guys can just hear and listen along. And then as we close this out, time out with the song, then I'm just going to turn it back over to you all at time of response 
of remembering that we are exiled people. We are journeying. We're going somewhere. We are really misfits. We don't belong. But we've been chosen. And it makes all the difference. So I want to invite you, if you feel like you need to close your eyes, that's fine. Watch the words up here, that's fine. But it's just a time to contemplate what the Lord just taught us about we belong somewhere else.